0: Okay, so we can go ahead and get started with the questions. How do you suggest we make decisions about when to let go of people in our lives that are causing us suffering and hurt us in the past? Or do we be a model Buddha and hope they change? By and large, this is always going to be a very personal decision. I can't give an overarching answer for every single situation. Um, I would say in general the the biggest thing is a continued tendency towards the unwholesome behavior i e. that you you know speak to them about it and they just keep doing it. There's no getting through to them, as it were. It's very noble of you to want to try and change the person, but generally it's more important that we change ourselves first and foremost. And when we're surrounded by people like this, it makes it all that much more difficult. And there's no need to make a already difficult task more difficult. We don't want to add that extra um, blockage. the same time you may have a long-lasting relationship with this person if you have a you know a very frank relationship with them it might be that it may be beneficial and productive to really have a heart-to-heart talk with them about you know what they're doing to you or doing to others or whatever but you have to go into that a not expecting the conversation to go in a positive direction it may very well not People don't always like being told that they're wrong, even if they are. And also you have to really restrain yourself not to let anger come about due to this, because otherwise everything's going to fall apart very quickly. That's very important when we confront anyone with a problem or an issue. We always have to be very careful not to let anger rise. And if we do see it, we have to try our best to not let that... <coughs> grow and come to maturity which is extremely difficult in the heat of the moment which is all the more reason why we should practice metta while we're in a you know a secluded place so that way when we do face these difficult situations we're a little bit more prepared for it it's quite difficult to get the engine of metta going in the heat of the moment and you need to you know put the choke on and do the air pump a bit and kind of rev it up and so that's the value of practicing metta on the cushion. You don't know when a difficult situation, or a difficult person is going to come. It all happens very quickly. And if your mind has been cultivating the tendency of metta beforehand, then you're much more likely to respond in a positive way and not have your mind get so caught up on that. But again, I, I can't give an overarching answer for each and every person and situation. It's uh, something you have to make the decision for. I am not the body, feeling, thoughts or mind. Who am I and who are you? Uh, The Buddha had a, um, a response to questions like these. People would ask him questions such as, who feels, who perceives, who cognizes? And the Buddha quite simply said, that's not a valid question. That's not a way, the proper way of looking at things. Instead, he gave the formulation of paticca samupada, dependent origination, saying that dependent on the arising of this, there is the arising of that. With the cessation of this, there is a cessation of that. And so thinking in terms of an I, who am I, already presumes a stable I, where that presumption is a bit. Um, it's a bit too quickly taken. We, we see a, a sense of self in our experience, but the Buddha points out that we don't necessarily have to accept that. That is not a, as given as we typically take it as. You know, you ask a person, who are you? And they confidently say, I am me. But then we can kind of poke further into that. What is you? And they'll give a question, or an answer of one of the five aggregates. And the answering in that way about the five aggregates is the clinging to the five aggregates, taking them as me, mine, myself. (coughs) So in reality, we find that instead of our sense of self being a stable, everlasting, permanent thing, that it instead arises due to sense contact. We have various streams of sense contact and within that range we, they have, these things are taken as mine. If something is mine, that points to an I, And so we see that the rising of what we call a self depends in fact on the world, which in fact makes it not a self at all. It's just a delusion born of ignorance. And so the Buddha says that Overcoming the conceit I am, asmi mana, is the supreme bliss. It's the equivalent of nibbana. Because we we take the assumption that I am, but in reality that's not justified. Because there is no permanence that we see in our experience. When we think of I, we think of permanence and mastery. We think of an I who is the unmoved mover of things in the world, who changes things, without changing itself, almost like God in a way. We think of ourselves as the gods of our domain, as it were. But in reality, this isn't true. When we look at experience with wisdom, we see it's all changing rather chaotically. Things arise depending on the prerequisite conditions being fulfilled when those things cease, that thing ceases too. And so the Buddha extols us not to look at things in terms of this presumption of I, but instead just look at conditions arising and falling. When we do this, we see the three characteristics, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not self. Is it true that it is very unlikely to be reborn human again? If it is so, Why? can only say what the discourses say. I don't really know of, of my own experience, but according to the Buddha, human rebirth is a very rare thing. <coughs> and the reason this is so um, beneficial is that we can think of, you know, various realms of existence. If we want to kind of imagine, you have like the realms of hells, the animal realms, the realms of um, craving spirits, and then on the other side of things, you have. Um, various deva worlds where there's a great deal of divine pleasure, sense pleasure, and so on. So if one's born in, let's say, a hell realm, then they're so overcome by pain that I don't see how they could possibly look at that pain with wisdom. It's just way too intense, way too extreme. At the same time, if one is born in a deva realm, they might be so intoxicated with very um, delightful and delicious sensual pleasures that they may have no kind of calling to practice the Dhamma, they don't see the problem. In the human world though, in our, in our own world, we have a nice mix of those things. On the one hand, we do have the gratification in sensual pleasures that we can see and investigate without getting, well, we do get intoxicated with it, but there's a possibility not to be anyway. And at the same time, there's, there's still these unpleasant feelings, this dukkha, and we can investigate that too. And there's the possibility that we're not overwhelmed by these things. So that's really the benefit. As to why that is, I couldn't tell you exactly why that is, why this one is particularly rare. It's uh, one of those things that even the Buddha says is rather an imponderable thing. He says that to contempl- try and contemplate the exact workings of how karma works, which you know determines the state of rebirth, is, would drive someone crazy. It's just too complex and so he didn't, he may have known it but he didn't bother expounding it because, you know, you start expounding these things, suddenly you get lots of debates. You get like, oh, karma works like this or karma works like that. He said, no, you don't have to worry about that. Just know that actions have consequences and, you know, focus on the practice. Don't get caught up in these kinds of debates that lead nowhere. How many hours of sitting meditation do you recommend every day to be most effective after we leave the retreat? Um, Again, it's going to depend largely on you and a number of factors such as how much time do you have? How many responsibilities do you have? um, How long have you been meditating? Obviously it's gonna be a bit easier to do if you've been doing it 10 years versus one year versus one week. I would say, at a a bare minimum, if you genuinely want to make good progress in your meditation, you should aim for an absolute minimum, an hour a day, whether that's one hour sitting or two 30-minute sessions, and uh, the more the better. This also includes sitting meditation, walking meditation, those uh, both can count to this. On the one hand, there's no hard, you know, set rule saying, oh, you must meditate, So you must clock in this many hours to attain enlightenment. It's not quite so simple. Yet at the, uh, at the same time, you know, people can get the idea, oh, I meditated five minutes today, I'm, I'm on the path to enlightenment. <laughs> and uh, it's just it's not how it is. There has to be the duration there. It's only when we have the duration that the really subtleties of the mind's workings start coming to, to view and we start getting bored and uncomfortable in those things if we leave meditation before that happens then we're just we're not looking at those things very well these these things need time to really kind of uh, what's the word marinate in conscience consciousness I don't know if I like that word marinating consciousness but staying around we had to investigate them is it okay to practice meditation different meditation styles or should one focus on one method only? Um, <clears throat> there is certainly a benefit to taking a period of time to focus on one specific type of meditation such as anapanasati, uh, the mindfulness of the elements or um, one of the other satipatthanas and so on, various different kinds of meditation techniques, metta and so on. Mm-hmm. It's good to you know, you say, oh, this week I really want to focus on this, I want to look at that. And that can be kind of influenced just by what in, seems interesting at the time. You may get an inkling, oh, I'd really like to examine how form appears in my experience. I'd like to do some elemental meditation. Maybe one week you really feel like you need some meta in your life. You need to really settle down your anger and aversion. At the same time, also, these are all different tools within our toolbox. We can use these things as the situation calls for. You know, as, for example, antidotes to the hindrances. For example, if we have the hindrance of sex, uh, sexual or sensual desire come up, we can practice asubha bhavana, which is the meditation on uh, um, non-beauty i.e. seeing the non-beauty of the body by seeing it as an amalgamation of organs and skin and sinews and such things. It's a very fun one by the way, I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, if you're feeling anger arising, that's a good time to practice metta. If you're you know feeling sleepy, it's good to do walking meditation. All these things have, you know, we can have a main practice, so to say, but at the same time it, it can be also very helpful to have these subsidiary things that can kind of help us when we find ourselves in a, uh, stuck in a rut or have something very strong and powerful coming to our experience. <clears throat> if science figured out a way to take us straight to enlightenment, would it still be better to practice? <laughs> the path toward enlightenment or is it best to skip ahead? Well I would a first say that it's not possible but if it were possible then yes go ahead and skip right ahead. The practice isn't itself what we're looking for it's the the end result it's you know the, whatever makes the practice more smooth that's perfectly fine there's not necessarily a benefit in working hard versus working smart though we do have to work smartly hard in most cases um, but yeah, otherwise I would just fundamentally say that science and the Dhamma are two quite different things because the Dhamma is dealing with a subjective problem Dukkha, that's not an objective problem it's not in the world of atoms, molecules not in the world of biology or chemistry it's within our experience and that's something science can't describe it's, when we talk about Dukkha we have to start from being a subject There is the world that is presented and a me that appears in experience and that is the field in which we are um, looking at things, in which we are looking at dukkha, understanding dukkha and removing dukkha. So I I think that science and the Dhamma are two quite different things, they deal with different problems. (coughs) What is mindfulness? Two hours later. (laughs) In brief, um, mindfulness is basically, I call it attention with an asterisk. So we can pay attention to many different things. It doesn't mean that we're being mindful of them. Mindful attention has a specific quality to it. And that is that it's without covetousness or grief. When we typically pay attention, there's greed and hatred at play. But, when we establish mindfulness of any given thing, we're, we're trying our best to look at that with equanimity, without um, trying to latch on to the experience, nor trying to run away to the experience, but rather simply just trying not to get emotionally involved in that experience, and just trying to instead, with that kind of emotional neutrality, start digging into the experience, seeing how is this experience structured, Depending on what is this arising, depending on what does this cease, what various things are at play here, how are they interacting, and such questions like that. How can one know when mindfulness is or is not present? It's a very good question. Hmm. When I, when I think of my own practice, it's just kind of something that you just kind of know that you're being mindful. I know that's not really the answer you want to hear, but having mindfulness has a, a certain quality to it that's quite distinctive from regular intention, attention. When we have typical attention, we're caught up in the immediate experience of something. So let's say we have a cake, for example, we're caught up in the signs and features of the cake, we're caught up with lust and desire for the piece of cake. We're kind of absorbed into the cake in a manner of speaking. But when we look at it with mindfulness, we remove kindness and grief. And so we see that instead of this cake, which I like, we see that dependent on the eye and form, there arose eye consciousness. The meaning of the three was eye contact. Depending on contact, there was a pleasant feeling born of eye contact. So you can see that we're, instead of getting caught up in the cake, we're taking a step back, taking a bird's eye view and seeing how is this cake experienced? As opposed to to experiencing the cake, we see how is the cake being experienced? I guess that's the the best way I can describe it. It's not an easy question, though. How is mindfulness cultivated, activated, and sustained? (coughs) By doing it again and again. (laughs) That's how you have to do it. Um, I mean, the first thing to do, obviously, is you have to set up the intention to practice mindfulness. But I'm sure as we've all seen one time or another, we set up that intention, and it can be very quick that we, we stop doing that. We get caught up in some shiny bauble or some uh, dark corner that we'd want to go investigate. We get distracted very easily. And this is only um, countered by continuing to, continuing to bring our mind back to the object of meditation, continuing to re-establish mindfulness. As we continuously do this, we start to understand the mind. We start to understand what's distracting it. Why is it getting distracted? Why is it that my, this mind goes over there as opposed to staying with what I wanted it to? As we come to understand that, it becomes easier to concentrate our minds as we remove the, the hindrances to meditation. And thus there's a symbiotic working of samadhi and mindfulness, concentration and mindfulness. Why is it so important? That's another great question. <laughs> Basically, uh, as I said, there's no possibility that we can look at the structure of experience if we're not practicing mindfulness. Otherwise, it's far too easy to get caught up in the experience itself. And that's where greed, hatred, and delusion come in. When we're practicing with mindfulness, we're taking a a neutral view, um, so to say, an objective view. And that allows us to look at things more clearly. We can see, what is dukkha? What is causing the dukkha to come to be? If I removed that, the dukkha would cease. And what is the path to the cessation of that? We can analyze things in these subtle ways, such as in the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And then by doing so, that's, that's really the only way to remove our suffering, by understanding the suffering itself. Even in the beginning of the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, I think Bhante Siddhananda went through this, the Buddha says that mindfulness meditation is the, the direct path for the overcoming of, or the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, for the attaining of the true way, for the attaining of knowledge, for the attaining of nirvana. And so it's quite integral to the Buddhist path for these kinds of reasons. Will there ever be another Buddha? <laughs> um, according to Buddhist cosmology, what's said to happen is that from time to time, I don't know how the intervals are determined, the a Buddha arises in the world. <clears throat> what makes a Buddha is that a Buddha is defined as one who, in a way, rediscovers the Dhamma. A Buddha is said to be one who establishes a teaching, establishes a community of Um, You know, practitioners who have seen the Dhamma, but from time to time, due to the impermanence of all things, even the Dhamma and the Sangha fall away from knowledge. The Sangha deteriorates or the Dhamma becomes unknown once again. And it's said that a Buddha is the one who rediscovers this in a way of speaking, rediscovers the fundamental nature of our experience. And he may choose to... uh, create a dispensation or he may just say oh look I'm enlightened I'm just going to go hang out on a mountaintop forever now. Uh, Those are called Pacheka Buddhas, those who don't teach. So it's said that yes there will be another Buddha but right now we're still in a dispensation so I don't know when it will be, who it will be, how it will be but that's what we're told. I I don't advise waiting for that. I advise trying now while you can. (laughs) It might be a very long time. If it is so rare to be reborn as a human, what else can we be reborn as? Will we be aware of the state? Uh, As Silananda mentioned, I mentioned briefly, there's supposedly 31 realms of existence ranging from hellish realms to ghost realms to animal realms, the human realm. Then there's uh, devas um, of the sensual world there's the devas of the Brahma world that are said to have um what is it? I think like non material bodies or something like that, all the way up to these uh states of very refined being that one attains or can be reborn in when they attain certain lofty attainments of concentration. The key, though, is that all of these states of rebirth, however long they may last, are impermanent, and hence beings cling to these states of existence, cling to those individual lives and find themselves disappointed because they eventually have to fall away from that state. Um, I, I must presume that we'd be aware of that state just as we're aware of being born as humans. Whether they will remember anything in the past is quite a different story. That's said to only happen with a great deal of meditative attainment, remembering past lives. So we we find ourselves quite forgetful of whatever transpired in the past. (coughs) What are the antecedent conditions to a fruitful breath awareness meditation session? There's a lot of things. I probably can't give you a comprehensive list off the top of my head, but I'd say the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, we have the idea that we can do whatever we want during the day, all willy-nilly, just doing whatever we please, and then suddenly we can sit and we'll be very focused, but it tends not to work like that. Mindfulness is something that needs to be, as much as possible, cultivated and refreshed throughout the day. When When we do that, to the best of our ability, We'll find that sitting down and watching the breath, or watching whatever, is quite a bit easier. Um, there's also the idea of you know just repeatedly doing it. Again, there has to be that um, <coughs> there has to be that um, amount of practice given to it that makes it you know easier, more natural. We get used to the practice, and we can start delving deeper into it. At the same time, also, there has to be a certain degree of discipline, i.e. that we're not always going to feel like meditating. We'll oftentimes feel like doing many other things. But we have to work to ignore those feelings, recognizing that when we don't want to meditate, that's just simply delusion. That's just delusion that's arisen in our minds. We think there's something out there that's going to satisfy us. That's just simply delusion. And so we have to get, we have to cultivate the discipline to really work against and through that resistance. And you'll often find once you start meditating, all the resistance goes away, some from time to time anyway. That once you start doing it, you're just kind of like, okay, well, I'm sitting already. Might as well just do it, right? At least for a little while. Doesn't always happen, but again, it's a practice. Um. <clears throat> A few other things I would say are really not to have great expectations in the, in the practice. I.e., like, you know, we can sit down, and we have this fantasy, I'm going to, you know, go into the blissful realm of the arahants today during this meditation, but uh, that's just setting us up to be disappointed. We, have, we can't deny whatever happens in our meditation experience. It's not the point of meditation. If we become distracted, we have to acknowledge that distra- there is distraction. And that's if when we, when we accept these things, we can work with them. Not accept them in terms of letting them be, but once we acknowledge their presence, we can work with them. So whatever comes up, as long as we deal with it or try to deal with it in a mindful way, the meditation has been fruitful. It doesn't have to be fruitful only because of some sublime experience you know people get so often caught up on oh i saw lights i saw i heard voices i saw this i saw that in my meditation and they ask us what was that but the answer we always give them and they're always disappointed is i don't know just be mindful of it what do you want me to say i can't give any significance to it i didn't see it so that's our catch all answer for when we don't know we just say be mindful can't go wrong with that what observable results can one look for to gauge their progress or lack thereof? One caveat to note is that progress is very rarely a linear thing. And most often it goes in, you know, it cycles. There's times where it's good, there's times where the concentration's difficult, there's times where it's better. We're not looking for like a day-to-day or week-to-week or even necessarily month-to-month kind of linear progression upwards, but instead a long-term one you can You know, if you ever get frustrated in your meditation, thinking that you can't concentrate the mind, you suck at meditating, whatever, just look back a couple months or a year, however long you want to look back, and you can see how much has hopefully changed, how your mind, you can find yourself reacting differently to certain situations. You can, you know, when you find that happening, it's a great moment. You know, you can have an experience, for example, where someone's berating you or irritating you or something and you don't feel angry and you're like, shouldn't I feel angry about this? This is weird. Why don't I feel angry? And you can, you can remember that moment. It's a very special moment. It's a, really in a way a glimpse of the Dhamma in a mundane way of speaking. Otherwise, yeah, that's the biggest thing just looking at long-term trends and you'll hopefully find that as you continue if you're doing it practice you know, diligently and striving diligently with discipline and consistency, that you'll begin to find it more easy to concentrate the mind, to tranquilize the mind. And as you continue doing that, you start going through possibly in some of the jhana states, for example, that's a possibility that's there. Or just in generally, you start seeing things in experience that you didn't see there before as the mind gets more subtle and tranquilized in the breath, for example, you start to see all different kinds of things in the breath, not like, you know, creatures or any funky energy patterns or anything like that, but you start seeing the structure of the breath. You start seeing, oh, you know, within this breath, there's everything. There's form, feelings, perception, volitions and consciousness, everything's there. But it takes a concentrated mind to even start seeing that. Even start analyzing that and seeing how those things arise and pass away depending on the breath. That's why anapanasati is said to be a you know, you can just bring that can bring you all the way to enlightenment because anything's there, everything is there, everything you need is in the breath if you just look closely enough. If you get distracted during meditation, what are some tips to bring your mind back? <coughs> Well, the first thing is, you know, when we're sitting to meditate, we have to be very diligent. We have to be really looking for distractions. There's always a beginning to a distraction. There's a subtle pulling away of the mind in a certain direction. You can be focusing on the meditation object and suddenly you feel this little tugging in a direction. It's very slight. It's very subtle. And we usually don't think very much of it at the time being. But, you know, it's like... it's like pulling um, uh, what is that something like I don't know, like really sticky glue or something. You pull it, and it stretches, 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 and at some point it just breaks off, and that's when we find ourselves completely distracted. So if you can recognize that before that happens, then you can very easily bring the mind back to whatever task or object it was uh, attending to. The other thing also is not to beat yourself up over it. <clears throat> you know, I had one person ask me recently, you know, I, I can't concentrate my mind, I think I have ADHD or something like that. And I told him, I think we all have ADHD. Because <laughs> that's the problem I think 99.9% of people have, that they try and sit and they're just distracted. That's just how it is. That's why this we have to kind of, you know, bulldoze through that, just realize, okay, I'm getting distracted all the time, it's not pleasant, but, you know, there's these brief moments... Where the mindfulness is getting a little more stable, and that's something we have to really relish and in, in progress. The other thing that I've found helpful is, um, <clears throat> you know, when you when you are mindful, it's important, I think, to really re- give that some recognition, establish the fact in your head that oh, mindfulness has been established, and that's that's really an occasion for joy. You can say that's a nice occasion, you can have a little party because there's some mindfulness established. Don't let the party get too wild and get distracted, but you can, you know, little pat on the back kind of thing. And that's really encouraging for the mind, because the mind above all else seeks pleasure and avoids pain. And so we associate being mindful with pleasantness. We see that we're doing the work we really want to be doing, like delving into writing a good book or something. And the mind is suddenly much more inclined to do that as opposed to wander off to fantasies and things in the past in every which direction. Um. <clears throat> so those are the, the tips I can think of off the top of my head. At the end of the day, it's just a matter of constantly acknowledging when a distraction has taken place and you know, very gently bringing the mind back to whatever it is you want to have it look into. I am feeling fearful and angry. How do I take refuge in the Sangha? Um, well, those are somewhat two different issues, I suppose. Feeling fearful and angry versus taking refuge in the Sangha. Um, well, I'm, I guess I'll start with just a statement. I'm, I'm sorry that you're feeling fearful and angry, but <clears throat> as I said in my talk, you can use that. What are you being fearful of? What are you angry about? Why is that causing you anger? Do you think that's justified? You'll find if you look closely enough that it's not justified because the fear and anger are not making you at ease. They're not making you content. Hence in our view of things they're not justified. You should take steps to remove them as best as possible. And furthermore don't, you know, get don't get, ang- you know, that this is something I uh, would find myself doing from time to time. You know, I'd be angry, and I'd be angry about being angry. Like, why am I angry? I'm so pissed off that I'm angry. And then down the toilet I went. So don't do that either. You don't want to get angry about your anger. Just acknowledge it. It's there. And getting angry about it is not going to make it any better. It's just going to make it markedly worse. So then how do I take refuge in the Sangha? It's in quite a similar way as you take a refuge in the Buddha and the Dhamma. Um, you recognize that there have been practitioners of the Buddha's teaching in the past who have uh, attained various stages of enlightenment. Um, it's said to be, you know, stream enterers, once returners, non-returners, and enlightened beings, arahants. And you recognize that as the potentiality of this, saying that, oh, you know, this is a very exclusive club, but if I work hard enough, I could join it too. And hence, we, we find ourselves, you know, reflecting on the Sangha in this way, saying that others have been here before. I find, I, find, I feel very inspired when I read some of the books of what's called the Teragata and the Terigata, that's called the Verses of the Elder Monks and Verses of the Elder Nuns. They're the very heartfelt poetry of, um, you know, problems on the path and people overcoming adversity on their way to, you know, spiritual attainments and, uh, you know, overcoming dukkha, and so I, you know, it's really, it can be a very warming thing to see that, you know, even ancient Indian times where we think of, oh, everyone's just flying around in the lotus position in light, and you see that they, they had very human real problems just as we do, these things that they had to take care of. Dear Bhante, why is Sangha so important? Um, I don't know if you mean the Sangha as in going to the Sangha for refuge or the Sangha as in a normal Sangha. So I'll I'll assume the second one since I kind of did the first already. (coughs) Um, A Sangha is important for the same reason that um, noble friendship is important. Hopefully, if you have a Sangha that's worth anything, you have people in that Sangha who you can trust, who you can relate to, who you feel that you can talk openly and unabashedly about your experiences in meditation and the problems you face. And, you know, they can give you that outside view that's so very difficult to sometimes get of ourselves. And that in and of itself is a great benefit of having such people. Um, that's what I. That's what I felt. You know, I had the fortune when I was living in Long Island that I went to this uh, small Sri Lankan temple, and you know there was a meditation group on uh, Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, led by two Sri Lankan monks who, thankfully, also spoke English quite well. And. I really felt a real transition in my practice from starting, you know, just kind of doing my own thing, reading books, perusing internet forums, doing whatever, to having a concrete group of people. One, one part of it I remember is I didn't feel so alone. When I was starting to meditate in college, I felt extremely alone. I had this, you know, how to explain it? Um... <clears throat> the inklings of practicing the Dhamma and all the things that come with it. And all I saw around me in my, uh, mostly my friend circle, was in my college fraternity, so you can imagine how that went. Just very antithetical to the Dhamma. I mean, I'm not saying they were bad people, they're still some of my closest friends, but I found myself diverging from their interests. They were interested in the typical things of young adult college life, and I was... I found myself starting to move towards Dhamma. It was very isolating, somewhat alienating. Having a a sangha, a group of people, I found that to be a very comforting thing. It felt like I know I'm not some weirdo practicing meditation or reading books on Dhamma or whatever. And also it was a great motivation. You know, a sangha can motivate each other to practice they say, oh, we're going to have a sit at this time and everyone comes and joins or they have discussions and such things. It's, um, yeah, it's just a very, very useful thing. But the caveat is this has to be a good Sangha. There can certainly be very bad Sanghas and that's no Sangha at all. You don't want that Sangha. As the Buddha said, if you can't find anyone to go with then just, walk, then just go the path alone. Fundamentally, you don't need anyone to walk the Buddhist path. It's all your own work in the end of things anyway, but it doesn't mean that having good companions along the way doesn't help. It's just a question of finding them and really sincerely, you know <clears throat> not not doing this because, oh, they're my buddies, they're my longtime friends, but rather because this is a person who will help me grow. That's really the criterion of who we associate with. This person can help me grow, I can help them grow. there's a mutual benefit between us, that's the optimal situation. Does insight into the three characteristics happen cumulatively or all at once? How does the progression go? And how can you continue it into your daily life? I would say it depends on what we define as insight. You know, other religious traditions have inklings of anicca, for example. They see the impermanence in the world, but they think, oh, this world is impermanent, but heaven is permanent. So clearly enough, one can have an inkling of anicca, but not see the other two. Yet, at the same time, one can't see the other two without seeing the first one can't see a one can't see dukkha without seeing anicca one can't see anatta without seeing anicca and dukkha and so what we find is that though the perception and insight of impermanence necessarily comes first if we're attending to things in the right way everything else progresses quite quickly and naturally up to the point where we um where we become a stream-enterer. When we become a stream-enterer, we see with... No, I'm sorry. The When we become enlightened, we see these things with absolutely perfect wisdom. It's when, we're, when we become stream-enters that the engine really gets going. We've overcome what's called Sakaya Ditti, which is believing there to be self or what is for self in the five aggregates. Yet there's still the conceit I am. There's still this bare subjectivity, if you want to call it that. And so, at the point of enlightenment, I have to presume that all these things kind of come into perfection, as you say, simultaneously. But before that, I don't think it necessarily has to be the case, though, optimally, that is, of course, the goal. How does the progression go, and how can you continue into daily life? Well, it's actually quite hard to continue into daily life. And that's really the value of sitting and walking practice. We're, when we're doing sitting and walking, there's much less to be absorbed in and excited about as opposed to normal waking experience. So I would generally say that it's probably a rather futile effort to try and cultivate insight into anatta while you're um, you know, driving in your car or something. You have too many things to focus on. What we really want to bring into daily life is what's called sati sampajanya. That's mindfulness and clear comprehension, i.e. constantly being aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. We can ask ourselves the question, what am I doing? And we answer that. As we keep asking the question, the uh, answer almost comes automatically after a while if we just keep doing it. And that's really the the biggest thing to do in daily waking life off the cushion or off the walking path, is to maintain that. A, so that one doesn't fall into breaking their moral precepts, and also so that when they sit on the cushion, things are much smoother because they've been cultivating a a habit of some mindfulness. And that really jettisons one in the sitting or walking practice makes it much easier to get it started, get it going, keep it going. How do you navigate with recurrent thoughts that you know are unproductive but have difficulty avoiding during meditation? There's one great sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Dvaita Vitaka Sutta. That's called the Two Kinds of Thought. That's the 19th one if you want to look that up later. In that, the Buddha says that before his enlightenment, he categorized thoughts into two categories. There were thoughts of what's called mitcha sankappa, which is thoughts of um, <coughs> covetousness, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of harming. And then on the other side, samma sankappa, right thoughts thoughts of renunciation, non-cruelty, and non-harming. And so when an unwholesome thought arose in his mind, first off he became aware of it, and then he investigated it and said, this thought brings my own harm, this thought brings the harm of others, and this thought brings the harm of both parties. There's nothing good about it. And he became disenchanted with that thought, and it became all that much more easier to let it go. Because we, we cling on to these thoughts because we think there's something good there, there's something to be had. You know, we, let's say we get caught up in thinking about the future. On the one hand, you do have to think about the future to some degree, but it has to be a very controlled and deliberate, not the mind wandering into the future. So when the mind wanders in the future, we think that if we just keep pressing that future possibility that we'll get some we'll find some new avenue that we didn't see before and we'll you know have the the advantage, we'll have the insider information for the future. But that's generally not how it works. We just go in circles in the same way. Looking for, you know, it's like being caught in a cul-de-sac with no exit. You just keep going and going and going and there's you think, oh, I'm going to find the exit soon, but no. You just have to stop driving, get out of your car and walk on the grass bring yourself back. So that's a very pragmatic reflection. Also, in the next sutta, Majjhima Nikaya number twenty, that's called the Vitakka Santana Sutta. The Buddha talks about something similar, in that if we have distracting thoughts, there are five methods that we can use to overcome them. I'm going to unfortunately fail to uh, give them all in the proper order, and maybe remember them, but that's my problem. Um, the first one is to change the object of our attention. So, for example, if there is anger arising, we can say, oh, instead of attending to anger, let me attend to thoughts of goodwill. We can do that. Um, What is the next one? Anyway, I'm just going to list them in no particular order. The next one that I can remember is we become um, rather, what's the word, revulsed by the thoughts. I don't mean that in a way of saying we beat ourselves up, but we see that anger or something has arisen, we're like, ooh, bleh, don't want that. We, we really become, in a way, averse to anger. We say, I don't want that anger. And even though that's aversion, still it's aversion giving us in the right direction. We're averse to anger, and so we'll cultivate its opposite instead. The other one I remember is like, one can kind of gradually bring oneself down you know, when you're caught in this thought world and you're really stuck in it, there's always the possibility of bringing oneself down, you know, you have all the concerns and the worries in that thought world and you can address them by one by one. So for example if you have anxiety about something in the future, um, let's say I don't know, you have a job interview coming up and your mind's racing worried about how you're going to respond to each and every question you can begin by, you know, just talking to yourself a little bit, saying, you know, I don't know what they're going to ask me. There's no point in doing this right now. What's going to happen is going to happen. If I go into the interview with mindfulness, it'll come up better anyway. But maybe you're still stuck in it, saying, oh, what what if they just don't like me? You say, well, that doesn't have to be the case. And you can kind of address each point very, you know, carefully and mindfully, and then eventually the mind will be like, okay, I've had enough of that for now. And then the I'm missing one, but you'll have to read the sutta for yourself. The other one I remember is, you know, if everything goes, doesn't, nothing works, and you're, you know, sweating, and you're clenching yourself, and you're about ready to get up of your seat and go punch a wall or something, then the Buddha, last word recommends just, you know, he calls it crushing mind with mind. You just basically make a very strong intention to crush anything that's unwholesome there, saying, no, no. Just grit your teeth, put the top of your, the tongue on top of your mouth just kind of clench everything. Obviously, that's not something to do unless it's absolutely necessary, A, because one can't understand what's going on when they do that, and B, because it's just very tiring and exhausting, both for the mind and the body. Dear Bante, what would you do or who would you be if you were not a monk? Uh, I don't mean to have this come off as bragging, although I'm afraid it will. <clears throat> um, there came a point in my life where I couldn't possibly fathom what else I would be. Like anything I think I could be, anything I think I might want to be, in my, in my, at least in my sober moments, the moments where I don't have greed or hatred, I, I can't think of anything else. It's a question then of remaining, re, retaining that sobriety. Obviously, if I gave way to greed and hatred, it's very likely that I, over time, may decide to do something else, whatever that might be. I don't exactly know. Um, yeah, that's all I can say. I'm gonna save that one, see if we have time. When you cling to something or someone, you are usually unaware of it until you become aware of it. True. Is there a way to make sure you are not clinging to anything, yet live a happy and fulfilling life in society? How can one live life the fullest without clinging? There's quite a few things to address here. Um, yes, that's quite true. When we cling, we're usually quite unaware of our clinging. To remove clinging, we have to first become aware there is clinging. And then we can see, oh, this clinging is making me miserable. It's giving rise to dukkha. The Buddha says that depending on clinging, there is existence. Depending on existence, there is birth. Depending on birth, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the whole mass of suffering. So clinging's quite late in the whole chain of that. So It's, it's something to really um, address very directly. And to do that we have to establish mindfulness. That's the only time when we can start seeing craving and clinging in the structure of our experience. <clears throat> Is there a way to make sure you're not clinging to anything yet live happily fulfilling life in society? Yes, become enlightened. Then you have no more clinging. <laughs> The question here though, I guess, is what do you mean by fulfilling life or living life to the fullest? (coughs) That's kind of something that's a bit difficult to define in regards to the Dhamma. People all have their definitions of what it means to live life to the fullest. In our view, one's life would be lived to the fullest if they've overcome existence, if they've attained Nibbana. Most people don't like that answer. but. We say that that's the ultimate highest bliss, better than any fulfilling life you think you would find in society. In the most ultimate way of things, society is to be abandoned. We have to not cling to anything at all if we want to attain true, lasting contentment and happiness. That, of course, doesn't mean you have to be a monk to do this, but there does have to be a certain degree of non-involvement in the world. Otherwise, the mind will just get too stirred up. Maybe some of you saw it due to the release in political situations, all the things that came out out of that. Dear Bhante, what are the causes and conditions for the arising of wisdom? I'm going to just start with a quote from the suttas. The Buddha said that one attains, I think it was right view depending on two things, wise attention and the utterance of another person, i.e. that we hear the Dhamma and we take that tidbit of information and we use wise attention, i.e. mindfulness, to investigate that point. But we wouldn't have come to gain that wisdom had we not heard the words and teaching in the first place. So at the root, those are the two things. Hearing, learning and knowing the Dhamma in an intellectual way and then, bring, then conducting investigation and experience. In the the most basic way, those are the things that give rise to wisdom. In another way of speaking, there's a triad of sila, samadhi, and panya. That's morality, concentration, and wisdom. One purifies their moral conduct, and this allows the mind to become tranquil and happy and concentrated. With a concentrated mind, we can see things as they are. We can see them objectively. We can see them mindfully. And this leads through knowledge and vision, to wisdom. Um, so that, but that is also kind of subsumed in the idea of practicing mindfulness. We purify morality mindfully, we attain concentration mindfully, we develop wisdom mindfully. It's all within that framework that we do these things. <clears throat> I think I know who wrote this joke question. I'm not gonna say who it was. It was asking how much wood could a woodchuck chuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? I don't know. What do Buddhists believe about evolution? (coughs) Well, I'm sure Buddhists believe many different things about evolution as Buddhists believe many different things about many things. As far as I'm aware, the Buddha never really talked about that. And I understand, I can understand why, because you know, when we we think about these things, like we think about all these the big questions, like where did the world come from? Why did the world come to be? Was it the Big Bang? Did God create it? Is there evolution? Is there creationism? Whatever we may think. And, you know, you get your answer. Oh, it was evolution. Oh, it was creation. And then you sit there and say, Oh, there's still dukkha. He got my answer to my question about evolution, but I'm still there's still suffering. The Buddha was very clear that these kinds of questions, they're really not core, central to living the holy life, to practicing Dhamma. And by and large, the Buddha focused exclusively on that. If something was not pertinent to that um, task, then he didn't teach it. He once said that. <coughs> He asked his monks to look at the the vast amount of leaves in a certain forest, and then he took a handful of the leaves and he said, "What do you think is greater? the leaves in my hand or the leaves on these trees in this forest? Obviously it was the leaves in the trees in the forest and he said, "So too, my knowledge of my from my enlightenment is like the leaves in this forest, but that which I teach you that which is pertinent to the holy life is this handful of leaves. So there are so many questions in the realm of metaphysical philosophy, ontological philosophy, all these philosophical schools, and into the ideas of these scientific inquiries that in the most ultimate way, we'll never know for absolute certain. You know, we can have a great deal of evidence that evolution is true, but there's a 0.00001% chance that it might not be or maybe God made evolution or whatever kind of Christian apologetics you want to think of. Um, What we can truly know for certain is that which we experience. If I'm sitting here and I have a pain in my knee, I know 100% undeniably that there is a pain in my knee. So too with the rest of the aspects of our experience and that's what the Buddha had us focus on. Not these things of the objective world, not these objective and speculative questions, but what we can know for certain. It's when we focus on what we know for certain that we can really gain wisdom because there's no doubt, there's no doubt about these things in our experience if we're looking in the proper way. Last question, what is the difference between Theravada Buddhism and other Buddhism? I can't say I'm extremely well versed in the schools of the Mahayana or Tibetan Buddhism. (coughs) There are certain Kind of surface level differences. For example, in Mahayana, you generally have a lot of what's called bodhisattvas, which is um, <coughs> basically, uh, you know, this idea of basically the Mahayana is the idea that being an arahant is selfish because you're not helping to enlighten beings. So in the Mahayana, one takes a bodhisattva vow that one will work to enlighten all beings. That they may attain enlightenment, but they won't attain final enlightenment until all beings are enlightened. And this has two problems. A, that that's not how enlightenment works, in our view anyway. The Buddha says that when one is enlightened, they go out just like a lamp that's run out of fuel. You can't put fuel back in the lamp. That's not how that works in this simile. And at the same time also, it's an impossible task. We can start asking the questions, how many beings are there in samsara? How long will they be in sangsara? We have to do these calculations if we want to liberate them after all. And there's no answer to those questions. They're completely imponderable. Um, the other differences are primarily, I think, in the ideas of emptiness. In in Theravada Buddhism, emptiness refers specifically to emptiness of self, voidness of self, i.e. that the aggregates are void of self or what can be taken as self. The Mahayana school is generally ran with this idea and applied it to everything, saying that all things are empty, which is to say that all things in reality don't exist. But this is actually, ironically enough, something they borrowed from Hinduism. In Hinduism, there's a concept of Maya, which is that all reality is an illusion, and our ignorance is that we, don't, we, take, real, we take unreal things as real. The Mahayana, if we you know, kind of boil it down, says quite similar thing. But that's not the Buddha's teaching, at least not in the Pali Suttas. The things of experience are quite real enough, in our view, because they affect us. They affect our mind. We we study the appearance of these things. Whether they're real or not, in this metaphysical sense, is quite irrelevant. The important thing, in our view, is that they appear, and that they have an effect, and that there's a structure to them, and in that structure there is dukkha, and that there's a possibility of removing that. Any other of those metaphysical ideas are quite besides the point. Um, so, those are the, the main differences I'm aware of, besides a great deal of other things, like they wear different colored robes and they're in different countries and other minor things like that. Um, but again, I could be wrong about Mahayana, it's just what I've, you know, see, from the little I've read, what I've seen. Okay, so we're right on the dot. So thank you all for submitting your questions and uh, tomorrow Bante Mangala will be giving the Dhamma talk and the Q&A so you can write any questions you may have and he'll answer those tomorrow. Otherwise have a good um, rest of your night and the rest of your retreat.